Thank you, Eileen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see your beautiful faces here this morning. Um, yeah. We are going to be in the book of John this morning and all of the rest of the Bible as well. So I, I had to start somewhere. So keep your finger in John and, and we'll navigate around. But I wanted to begin there because, um, well, I'll tell you in just a minute why I want to begin there. But let's first begin with the mission statement that we have up here on the screen. We exist to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. This is the mission of First Baptist Church, and we've been talking about it, and we'll continue to talk about it for the next couple of months. And last month in January, we looked at what it means to be a people. And this month, we're looking at the life-giving fullness of the gospel. Last week, if you were here, we got a little bit of help on answering the question, what is the gospel from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1? And then over the next few weeks, we'll explore what we call the fullness of the gospel. In other words, we're, we're claiming that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an anemic gospel. It's not a gospel that's barely news or, or not quite good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the scripture tells us, is huge. It's all-encompassing, it's full, it's complete, and it's unmatchable. And the fullness of the gospel re refers really to that completeness, the entirety of what God has done in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because if we're honest, sometimes we believe a, a less-than gospel, an almost-but-not-quite gospel. A one part, but not the whole gospel. We believe, and we're prone to believe, wannabe gospels. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that gave form and birth to this church body 150 years ago, and which has sustained this church through a century and a half of life together, and unless Jesus comes back before then, we pray we'll continue to fuel the life and fruitfulness of this church body for another 150 years. It's this gospel of Jesus Christ that is not unleaded. It's not half-calf. It's not wimpy. It's not a soft, small gospel. It is a huge, massive, life-giving, full gospel. And we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best news in the world. So over the next three weeks, we plan to explore exactly what the fullness of this gospel means in three different ways. Today we'll explore how the fullness of the gospel gives life. That's why we call it a life-giving gospel, because it gives life. Next week we'll explore how the fullness of the gospel shapes every part of our life. And then in two weeks we'll explore how the fullness of the gospel expands our lives and helps us to live beyond ourselves. So how does the gospel Give life. Let's, be, let's begin by considering the passage that Eileen just read for us there in John chapter 10. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. We're going to meditate on these verses for just a few moments, on these beautiful words of Jesus from Jesus' own mouth. Begin in verse 7, where Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in just a few verses here, there's a lot to meditate on. But I just want to point out three things to begin with. The first is that Jesus is deliberately referencing Old Testament imagery, like Psalm 23 that Melissa read earlier. And also the the lesser known Ezekiel 34. But you know Psalm 23. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This beautiful imagery of a caring shepherd. A shepherd who's for his people. And then Ezekiel 34. A beautiful passage. A a, a stunning passage. a, a, A heavy passage about shepherds. And in verses 15 and 16, God says this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So you got Psalm 23, you got Ezekiel 34, you have this Old Testament imagery of Yahweh as the shepherd. And without any qualms, Jesus takes this imagery that refers explicitly to God, to Yahweh, and he attaches it to himself, saying, I am the Lord and the shepherd of Israel. That's me. It's profound. The second observation to meditate on is this passage is unique in that it includes two of Jesus' seven famous I am statements that we find in the Gospel of Life. So all over the place, in in the Gospel of John, excuse me. So you've got, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, in just a few verses, we have Jesus identify himself as the door of the sheep. He says it twice. And then he says, I am the good shepherd, twice. So so in, in very close proximity, you have two of these great I am statements defining who Jesus is. I'm the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And then finally, Jesus makes a pretty bold statement. And he says that whoever enters through him, the door of the sheepfold, who enters through him will be saved and will have life abundantly. I'm going to argue for the rest of this sermon that these two concepts Being saved and having abundant life are virtual synonyms. That's going to be kind of the main point of the rest of the morning this morning. That being saved and having abundant life are virtual synonyms and that they are central to the fullness of the gospel. The life-giving fullness of the gospel. That Jesus has come to save and he saves us and he gives us abundant life in the gospel. So let's begin by pointing out that the gospel gives us life. We're going to look at several ways the gospel gives us life. The gospel gives us life, first of all, by freeing us from sin. The word salvation is one of those kind of rich Christian words. It's it's very robust, but it's, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. And we know that when words get thrown around a lot, when they become common, what happens to them? 
they kind of get emptied of their meaning, right? So have you ever said, yeah, I literally went downtown the other day, and I literally was talking to this guy, and I literally, I just, I mean, my head exploded, literally. You hear that all the time. And the, and the word literally gets used for literal things and metaphorical things. It's a word that gets used all the time, like the word like. Like, like, like. It's, you probably remember The Princess Bride, right? And the character Vicini, the, the movie The Princess Bride. And uh, Vicini kept saying, inconceivable. You remember that guy? Right? And then there's one point in the movie where Inigo Montoya looks at him and just kind of nonchalantly says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> That's kind of what we've done with the word salvation, right? We, we use it and we throw it around so much that it's kind of almost been emptied of its meaning or we don't really know what it means. But at base, we know that when we talk about salvation, we must speak of our sins being forgiven, that we've been saved from our sin. But what does this mean? What is, what is being saved from our sin and how does it give us life? Well, biblically speaking, salvation isn't just something that happened in the past. It also has present aspects and it has future aspects. In other words, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So salvation is not just a one-time deal. It has to do with all of our life. So let's begin in the past. If we're a follower of Jesus... If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, your salvation took place in the past in two distinct ways. And the first is that it was accomplished, your salvation was accomplished decisively about 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross and in a borrowed tomb outside of Jerusalem. That's where your salvation took place. You are saved through Christ's atoning death and through His victorious resurrection. Well before you were born, Jesus decisively conquered sin on your behalf. Amen. Secondly, the way that our salvation takes place in the past is, is that in God working faith in you as a saving, in a saving way at the moment of your conversion. In the moment when you placed your faith in Him, when you placed your trust in Him. And some of you can remember that moment. And for some of you, that moment was extended over time, and maybe it was when you were young and you don't remember it. But there's a point in time where all believers put their faith in Christ, and Ephesians 2 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For others of you, this hasn't taken place. And so for you, all of the things I'm talking about, past, present, and future, are still in your future. But today could be the day. For you, today could be the day that you place your faith in Jesus for the first time and you enter in, putting your trust in Him, and you enter into that salvation and that forgiveness of sins. So Jesus decisively paid for sin at the cross, and He destroyed the power of sin at the resurrection when He was raised from the dead. And He applied the work of what we call justification to us at our conversion. And that simply means, justification simply means that we've been made right with God because of the work of Christ. That our accounts are cleared and that we are good in relationship with God. Now if you're a follower of Jesus then, by faith, you have been saved and you have been 
delivered from the power of condemning sin. You might want to write that down. Condemning sin has no power over you anymore. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Hallelujah. It even says in my notes, praise God. Sin no longer has power over you because of what Christ has done and the faith you've put in him. Now, present. Let's move to the present aspect of salvation. Our salvation is taking place now. Consider 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Present tense, are being saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, present, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Apparently the Corinthians needed to hear this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So so because God has justified us by the work of Christ on the cross, by us putting our faith in Him, and, and Him applying that justification to us, that freedom from condemning sin, we're now no longer under that power of sin. However, in God's wisdom, He has left us in these bodies in this world. And we continue to have what we call indwelling sin. Maybe you want to write that down. Condemning sin, indwelling sin. Two different things. But we continue to live with anger or lust or pride or fear or sloth. Whatever those sins are for you that you continue to battle against. And the present work of God in our lives, this present work of salvation, is what we call sanctification. And it consists of of the Holy Spirit working in us every day to help us put sin to death and make us ever more like Jesus. That's the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. And in God's wisdom, that's the perfect thing for you to work on right now. And for me to work on right now is becoming more like Jesus with His help presently. But there is a future that has been promised to us, so consider Romans 5.9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, now presently justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, future from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us, future, he's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this future picture here where one day, We will come in front of God to the judgment seat and we are destined at that point to be saved, finally. And by faith, we've been freed by the work of Christ from condemning sin. Our current lives of faith are battlefields where we fight today with the help of the Holy Spirit to put indwelling sin to death. But in the future, guess what? We're promised a time when freedom from sin will be ultimate. A final and complete deliverance and separation from sin and its consequences. I can't wait. But we're not there yet. And so we continue to live and battle sin and, and live into our salvation that God has so graciously given us in the gospel. The gospel gives us life by freeing us from sin. 
The next point is the gospel gives us life by rescuing us from death, which is, is kind of a no-brainer because what's the opposite of life? Death, right? So the opposite of life is death, and, and to give us life, we must be rescued from death. But how does the gospel rescue us from death? Well, to answer that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning when God placed two human beings in a garden, and he gave them access to all kinds of food. Every tree that was good good. For food and and lovely to the eye, God gave them. You may eat of any tree. They could even eat of the tree of life. But only one tree was off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequences for for eating of that tree were dire, which we find out in Genesis 2.17. In the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. So as you're reading the story in Genesis, you should be surprised When Eve takes of that fruit, eats it, gives it to her husband who's with her, and he eats it, and they don't die. They don't just drop dead, which may have been more helpful. They don't just drop dead. They don't immediately die. In God's wisdom, the death he was speaking about entered the world at that time in an unnatural separation and hostility that arose between Adam and Eve and the natural world. There was now the ground was cursed because of them. Enmity arose between each other. They, they hid from each other. They covered each other. They were no longer they, themselves. They were no longer naked and unafraid. Now they were clothed and ashamed. But even more than that, most importantly, there was a separation now between them and their God, the one that they used to walk in the garden with. Now they could no longer be with, and they are separated from the tree of life. Verse 24, Genesis 3. God drove out the man and the woman, and and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a a scary-looking angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So as a result of the fall, humanity is, is separated from life. Now, Several centuries, millennia later, we get to the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And John purposely connects Jesus to the creation's narrative. So you read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you go to John 1.1, you hear very similar language. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. He was there at the creation, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now listen to this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in just a few phrases, what John is saying is that access to the tree of life has been reopened in Jesus Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John's connecting these dots between Jesus all the way back to that tree of life that stood in the garden. And we find that the entire story of Jesus at the end of the book of John is bookended with this idea of life. So John 20, verse 31. After John's written this whole book, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus has come to reverse the curse, to reverse the consequences of sin, which is death, and to restore our access to the tree of life. 
namely through his death on a new tree of life, the cross. The gospel truly rescues us from death. So John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The gospel gives us life by rescuing us from death. The next point is a short one. The gospel gives us life by reconciling us to God. We've already pointed at this a little bit, but in our rebellion and sin, as we saw, death means separation from God. But through Jesus, we're given life through a restored relationship with God our Father. Jesus prayed to his Father in John chapter 17, and this is one of the verses, first verses I memorized ever. John 17, 3, but here's 2 and 3. You, this is Jesus praying to God the Father. He says, you, the Father, have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life according to Jesus? It's knowing God. Through Jesus. It's knowing God. It's being restored into a right relationship with God. That is eternal life. The gospel gives us life by reconciling us to God. Next, the gospel gives us God's very own life. Let me give you a $10 theological word that you can go to all the parties and either look really smart or look like a total nerd. Okay, It's the word aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. Anybody ever heard that word before? Nice. So I'm the nerd in the room. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? The word aseity refers to the property of being self-existent. It's a biblical attribute of God, and it basically means that God does not depend on anyone or anything else for his existence or for his life. He's completely self-sufficient. If nothing else was, God still would be. In John chapter 5, and you can look at these couple of verses. John chapter 5, verse 21 and 26. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And verse 26 of John 5. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God does not get his life from anyone else, from someone else. Doesn't have a mother, doesn't have a father, wasn't born, didn't start. He's always been eternal. There was never a time when God was not. There never will be a time when God will not be. He has always existed perfectly and fully. Thus, he is also the only one who can give life who can grant life. And this power and authority belongs not just to God the Father, but to God the Son, Jesus Christ as well, who says, and now we're going to look at a few more of those I am statements from John, who says in John chapter 6, verses 35 and 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 33, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So that, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. So to place one's trust or belief in Jesus Christ is to take hold of the bread of life and eat it, and as he says in verse 51, to live forever. So to believe in Jesus then is to partake in his life 
as our sustenance. Now, when Jesus said that, it wasn't that just pe- people were just confused about it. People actually turned around and left in droves because those words were really hard to hear. Now, in John 11, remember John 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. And prior to raising Lazarus from the dead, he's speaking with one of Lazarus' sisters, and he says in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus is saying that through faith, then, we latch ourselves onto the indomitable life of Jesus Christ. When we believe in him, his life is ours. And, and finally, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples another I am statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to life. And here's perhaps the most profound thing that happens in the gospel. That God himself invites us to share his own unique and unbreakably powerful life. So when Jesus gives us life, it's not like he's just turning the dial up to 11. Like it used to be at 5, I'm I'm turning up to 11. You're going to have a great life now. He does something infinitely better. He shares his own life with us. His life becomes our life. We live because he lives. Now, I know that's a little bit mind-blowing, a little bit mind-boggling. Some of you are probably sitting there going like, is Pastor Mike turning into a heretic? But let's, let's explore the scriptures a little bit more. Colossians chapter 3. I love this. For you have died. You have died, and your life, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. Get your head around that for a minute. Your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And in Paul's mind, we are so attached to Christ that he is our life. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ, who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans, moving on here, Romans chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, and then 8 and 11. Paul writes again, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self is dead. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you also may consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. By faith, brothers and sisters, by faith, the New Testament tells us we have been placed in Christ. His life is now our life. And every blessing and benefit that we obtain in the gospel, including life, only comes to us in Christ. Christ. Now, now this doesn't mean that we become Jesus or we become the fourth, fifth, sixth, and on to infinity member of the Trinity. I don't even know what you'd call that. 
We're not somehow divine. It just means that like a branch to a vine, we are taking in Jesus' life, and it's what animates us and gives us the life we now have. The only life we really have is the very life of Jesus, which I can think of nothing else that would be more rightly labeled abundant. Abundant life. So the gospel gives us life by giving us God's own life. And the gospel gives us life by transforming all areas of our life. And I'll just spend a minute on this because this will be the topic of next week's sermon. So in the gospel, as I said before, God isn't giving us an elevated sort of existence. It's not like he's replacing Mike Faye 1.0 with Mike Faye 2.0. Abundant life doesn't just mean that my life is a little more pleasant a little more enjoyable, a little bit more nice. It doesn't mean that I have all the money or the stuff that I want or that I'm successful at every endeavor that I, that I apply myself to. That's not what abundant life is. And what Jesus is doing in the gospel is transforming every aspect of our life, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, relational, everything. All of, all of our lives are now open to renovation because what, of what Christ has done for us. This is what the gospel is doing for us now. God is in the business of making all of us look more like Jesus. So when Jesus said that he came so that we might have life and have it abundantly, he wasn't just speaking of the afterlife. He wasn't just speaking of, hey, when you die and get to heaven, you're going to have eternal life, but for now you just got to stick with it. We know that Jesus speaks a lot about eternal life, but that doesn't simply mean a life that just goes on and on. Neither does it mean something that happens to us later after we've died. When Jesus gives us abundant life, he gives it to us now. The life-giving fullness of the gospel is something that we can presently experience and live out and tell other people about and share about right now. Amen. And then finally, the gospel gives us life by costing us our lives. Jesus said that he gave his life to us in John 10, verses 10 and 11. He gave us his life by laying down his life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus went to the cross. He gave his life. He laid it down so that we might have life. But he doesn't leave it there. We wish he would. But he doesn't leave us there. He calls us to the cross too. He calls us to give our, our lives in exchange for his. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the 1930s and 40s, killed by the Nazi regime shortly before the end of World War II. And when I say shortly, I mean like days. And he famously wrote, I love this quote, when Christ calls a man, when he calls someone, a man or a woman, when he calls a man, he bids him come and die. The life-giving fullness of the gospel reminds us that our life is not our own, it's now Christ's life, and we have his life in many different ways. And perhaps today, we can live into that reality in a deeper way. 
And as we come to the table today, as we do most every week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We, it's a little piece of bread and a little glass of juice. Somehow we remember and are shown the body and the blood of Jesus, our Savior, who gave himself for us that we might have life abundantly. And so as you come this morning, just partake of his life. Just come and remember the sacrifice that he laid it down for you so that you might have fullness and abundance and thank him. Remember. As you walk out of here today, remembering the life he's granted to you in the gospel, perhaps that would change the way you live even today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come. There's a few stations up here and some in the back and partake as we sing the last few songs. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I would encourage you to pray. I would encourage you to think on what I've said this morning. I encourage you to come talk to me or someone else and respond to this gospel that will give life and gives it abundantly. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the gift you've given us of life in your Son, Jesus Christ. We confess with him that you are the giver of life. That you have life in yourself. Father Jesus, you have life in yourself and... I can't think of any other way to exist for eternity but by being connected to you, being united to our Savior, and partaking of the very life that you have. God, thank you for granting us the ability to come in and be part, to come into the wedding feast and celebrate with you, to be part of your body, a part of your bride. Jesus, we are, this morning, I am blown away by your grace and the grace that comes in life. Thank you for the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And I pray for those in the room, Lord, that maybe you're grappling with it or maybe you think it's crazy or maybe you've never heard it before. I pray that you work in their hearts as well to show them the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of forgiveness of sins and the conquering of death and the beauty of a life everlasting. I pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.